Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. And this is Tuesday Home Time with Jan Bartlett. And this week we'll be hearing a report back on the counter-rally at the Melton Rally counter-rally on Sunday with Debbie Brennan. Everyday life under occupation in Palestine with Nasa Mashi. Elections in Venezuela and many more. Country analysis with Professor Emeritus James Petrus and a look back at Nugenhan Bank with Joan Coxage. But first I'm going to play you a little bit of music from, well, in commemoration of Eureka, which will be coming up next week, and then we'll have Mr. Kevin Healy. From every corner of the world, they came from all around. When in 1851 they struck gold upon the ground, every voyage was a long one, months upon the stormy sea. Some to seek their fortune, others escaping slavery. What they found on the gold fields was ruled by brutish thugs, discrimination and taxation mixed with swinging billy clubs. The gold was getting scarcer and cops were getting worse. The diggers burned their licenses and vowed to end this curse. They swore an oath beneath the Southern Cross. They'd stand together and break the license laws. From twenty different nations they gathered here as one In Ballarat beneath the southern sun The crown tried to divide them, giving preference to some The diggers wouldn't have it, they said it's all of us or none They built the stockade while the redcoats massed nearby And they heard the miners shouting We're ready now to die The rebel miners waited For whatever lay in store And on one December morning In 1854 The redcoats attacked the camp Dozens there would fall Amongst these brave gold diggers Who'd risen to the call They swore an oath Beneath the southern cross They'd stand together and break the license laws From twenty different nations They gathered here as one In Ballarat beneath the southern sun A week, Chandler, to when Spare a thought yet again this week For the big troubler was he The national icon we all love And more particularly respect BHP, which as we said last week, we always thought stood for bloody huge profits, but now realise has transmogrified into bloody huge polluter, although our listener did point out the full title these days is bloody huge polluter bilious town, the latter summing up the former communities that lay in the wake of bloody huge polluters bloody huge polluting. T 
two awards here, the Kicking Them When They're Down Award of the Week and the, well, that clears that up Award of the Week. The first, how cruel of the Queensland, Her Most Gracious Majesty's Land Government to choose this time as Buddy Huge is working overtime to make life easier for the people of Brazil for whom it went to make life better, having accidentally made it a touch worse, to go after Buddy Huge for royalties, claiming the company had been paying only a fraction of the royalties it ought to be paying thanks to flogging resources to its Singapore entity at bargain basement prices, then selling them from there at skyscraper penthouse prices. Poor old Buddy Huge having to explain the government has got it all wrong if it claims Buddy Huge is tax or royalty dodging. It's just normal business practice, and we're a very normal business who just loves normal business practice. Come on, Her Most Gracious Majesty's Land Government, give it a break. Can't you see it's got more important things on its bottom line plate than worrying about not paying a few royalties? Then, still putting the boots in, that... It looked like a scene from hell, P1, True Blue Aussie Capitalist Review headline we mentioned last week, a survivor's account of the bloody huge polluter terrorism, the sulfurous smelling sludge heading down two rivers on its way to the Atlantic, where it's now doing its bit for the environment, and then Brazil's big supremo got the boots kicking again. It had cut off drinking water for a quarter of a million people and saturated waterways downstream with dense orange sediment that could wreck the ecosystem for decades. Has she got no feelings for poor old bloody Huge's sensitivities? Bringing us to the, well, that clears that up award of the week. Sensitivities. We've only got to look at bloody Huge chairperson Jack Nastia to see a sensitive man. The words humanity, compassion, care immediately spring to mind. Don't know why these people love being photographed, because most of them tend to look like what they are. Remember our former great and beloved Big Supremo nuclear hawk himself, those eyes, lifeless, cold as ice. Anyway, Jack Nasty was asked about that Brazilian Environment Department report that there were structural problems with the tailings dams and therefore the accident that happened was likely to happen unless bloody huge and its partner in crime, uh, sorry, partner in mining, Vile, did something about it. Nothing to do with it, he said. There was no relationship between the report that the tailings dams were likely to burst and the tailings dams, surprise, surprise, bursting. Uh, uh, oh, thanks, Jack. And then some journalist had the audacity, the insensitivity again, kick, 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 to raise bloody huge's environmental record around the world. PNG, for instance, where the environment river system has also been destroyed for the foreseeable. There was no tailings down there, Jack saged. Um, well, not after it burst, the nasty journo rejoined. Well, after it burst, there was no tailings dam to burst to cause pollution. Jack put him in his place. So, a report that pollution would happen had nothing to do with pollution happening, and a tailings dam that burst had nothing to do with environmental destruction and destruction of people's way of life because it burst and caused destruction because after it burst, it wasn't there to cause destruction. Uh... Uh, oh, Jack, Jack Nastier, your... Well, that clears that up, award of the week is on its way. Perhaps tail in tailing should be spelled T-A-L-E when Jack's around. 
Well, Jack also told environmentalists concerned at the impact of a bloody huge coal mine in Borneo, orangutans, forests and those silly concerns, that if we don't, someone else will. And the area of interest has had accelerated development pressures over the last 20 years and it is not the pristine wilderness it was two decades ago. See? Destroy, then use the destruction to justify destruction, like melting the Arctic, then rubbing your hands at the new opportunities. And Jack also said, we can make a very positive social contribution and help raise the standard of mining in the area. Whatever that means. How many millions does he get paid for that rubbish? Not rubbish. Bloody huge still assures us, and more particularly still assures the homeless and survivors, there is nothing dangerous in the sludge. Well, well, apart from the deaths and destruction and displacements, which must assuage them, the assurance that is, assuage them no end, and leave them pondering what the damage might look like if it was dangerous. Oh, and while we're kicking them, they hold exclusive rights to tug services at Port Headland, where workers won improved wages and conditions after a long, protracted campaign. Obviously too crippling, workers and evil unions too selfish, because bloody huge profits has been forced to sack the company they worked for and has given the contract to a company that uses a non-union workforce. The contract was awarded on safety, capability and cost-effectiveness criteria, it said. Safety first, of course. Well, we know bloody huge is always safety first, safety second, safety third. Otherwise, Great International lifting the poor out of poverty projects like Octeti and Samarco and Olympic Dam might create a few problems. Also, new safety first regulations starting this week. New directive from our Foreign Affairs Department headquarters in Canberrington or, or, or Washbearer or whatever. Following that national scandal, a government flogging off public property, no problem there, making it more efficient, relieving it from the bloated hand of the public sector. But this perfidious neo-terrorist government failed to consult the US of the UN of the US of the world to receive a approval on whether the efficient private buyer was acceptable, didn't pose a security threat to US of, and therefore true Blue world peace. Imagine flogging off public property without consulting our headquarters in Washington. All government, local, state and federal decisions on everything, just to ensure nothing slips through the security net, must now be forwarded to national headquarters in the White House for approval before they can be enacted upon. And we selfish fossils were only complaining about some minor issue which fades into, like flogging off public property. The banks have launched a PR campaign to convince us they are an essential and responsible contributor to True Blue Aussie's prosperity and to explain to consumers why they keep pushing up interest rates, which isn't all that good for the consumer's prosperity. Surely they don't need a full-scale campaign to explain greed. They also say they will concentrate on their role in our future prosperity and no longer quote, this is, this is a direct quote listener, advocate some issues such as climate change, economic security for women and an affordable housing scheme for low income and homeless people.
Don't know about you, listener, but I had no idea they were. Bet they hope their PR campaigns are a touch more successful than that. And Price the Poor Waterhouses come up with a report, doesn't say who commissioned it, but we could take a stab, that a 5% reduction in the corporate tax rate would produce a $291 billion growth dividend for the economy. Because as we know, the corporates who don't pay tax anyway would not pocket the cut to the tax they don't pay and would employ lots more workers, which is all they exist for, who would pay lots more tax. So obviously, surely that means there's no need to increase or broaden the GST. They, they wouldn't want workers to be paying more tax, both income and GST, would they? And of course, Price the Poor Waterhouse, so concerned that the government should net more tax, would never dream of advising its corporate clients how to go on not paying tax on the crippling tax rate they don't pay. Quite legally, of course, no suggestion of tax dodging or evasion. Finally, as the Lord Rupert of Wapping Sin denounces left-wing thugs in Melton, apparently a left-wing non-thug has emerged. On being handed the corporate science and corporate bottom line innovation portfolio to build on his astronomical success as corporate education supremo, Christopher Payne in the told us big supremo Malcolm Tunner Bull had told him to bring out my inner revolutionary. Latest report from the operating theatre, not good news, I'm afraid. Surgeons have sliced his body from we know where to breakfast time, but sadly it looks like a lost cause. All to no avail. Absolutely no sign of. Good afternoon. And good afternoon to Mr Kevin Healy. On the line is Debbie Brennan from the Campaign Against Racism and Fascism. And we're talking about the rally and the counter-rally at Melton on Sunday, Debbie. The highlights and the low points. First, the highlights. High points for Sunday were, first of all, the very good turnout on our side, on the anti-fascism side. Because even though Reclaim Australia clearly decided to move their rally from central Melbourne out there to Melton, people still came. Another high point was to see the union presence there and the fact that unions are now becoming involved in um, backing the counter-rallies against the far right and the fascists. My union, for example, the National Union of Workers, endorsed our counter-rally. Other unions, like the Rail, Tram and Bus Union and the Australian Services Union, put out very strong statements. And at the rally itself, there were unionists there, including union officials, and it was wonderful to have a speaker from the Geelong Trades and Labor Council, Tim Gooden, speaking very strongly about why this is a fight for unionists and unions. I think that probably the third high point that springs to mind is, as usual, the diversity of our side. People from, our, from all the diverse parts of our community do understand the danger and are prepared to go and stop that danger. Also the fact of people looking after each other. Absolutely. 
that you're right that was very 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 strong i believe that the critics of the counter rally need to be reminded of the words of martin naimola first they came for the socialists and i did not speak out because i was not a socialist then they came for the trade unionists and i did not speak out because i was not a trade unionist then they came for the jews and i did not speak out because I was not a Jew. Then they came for me, and there was no one left to speak for me. That's absolutely true. One thing that's being put out by the mainstream media now, I've noticed, coming out of the November 22nd actions, is that the mainstream media is pumping out this message that we should not counter-rally. And for... The reasons that you've just put, that's a very, very strong reason. And this is something that we all in the community understand very clearly. That history from which that quote comes tells us what happens if we do not counter-rally and counter-organize against this this small, incipient, far-right fascist movement. Because that's exactly what happened in the 1920s and 30s in Germany and Italy in particular, that counter-organizing did not happen, and we certainly know what the tragic, horrible consequences were. So if that doesn't tell us why we have to be out there organizing, then I don't know what would. And in fact, to quote someone else, to quote Hitler, Hitler said himself that if the Nazis had been countered early in the peace, then they would have been crushed like an egg. We have to also talk about the fact that they were driven out of the main street. They didn't have a chance to get to the main street, even though they had the support of, some people are saying, six, 700 police. I have never seen as many police and police vehicles in one place ever. Absolutely. The the police were definitely out in force, including those who were dressed up in their riot gear. In fact, they had, as they do, they had kettled us. They pepper sprayed us. It was like July 18th all over again. There was a point at which those on their horses were just beginning to charge as they were ready to charge. And so the police were there in their full force, as you just said, there to protect the Reclaim Australia rally. I think this really comes to yet another high point as far as our side is concerned, is that despite that really heavy force coming from the police, we stopped Reclaim Australia from marching through the streets of Melton. In fact, they retreated. The police escorted them on a march in the opposite direction to some park where they could have their barbecue. I certainly see that as a victory. thought about it later and thought what the conversations between some of the police and some of those demonstrators would be as they marched along the road with no other people listening to what they were saying. And there might have been a few high fives. There could well have been. 
And this is another thing about the mainstream media. I know as one of the media spokespeople for the campaign against racism and fascism, I was asked, well, don't you see that by counter-rallying, then this is actually bringing on the violence? And, of course, the clear answer to that is that the violence comes from the police, it comes from the far right and the fascists, it's not our presence that brings on that violence. It's the inherent violence of the role of the police and also the inherent violence of this incipient movement. And that, again, if we don't stop that movement, then we're going to see that violence really unleashed at catastrophic levels. Of course, when we counter-rally, we have to be prepared for that violence. We're always prepared for that violence. But that violence comes from, again, the role of the police who are there to protect the corporate interests and therefore the status quo. And of course, it comes from the far right. That's a violent movement. How are the people who were injured? Have you been able to find out? Well, I can say a couple of those who were injured, they're okay. But um, I can't speak for all of them. I understand that a couple of people were hospitalized as a result of that spraying, that pepper spraying. And again, this is just a hideous indictment on the police. And it's the police who are, as so many of listeners understand perfectly well, they are an armed force of the state. And the fact that they're using pepper spray, I was watching as that haze of orange spray just mm. spread into the into the people. It's a lethal weapon. It can kill. It can. It absolutely can. It can injure very badly, and it can kill people who have particular conditions, but that doesn't seem to come into their consideration. And something else that I saw when that was happening on Sunday, is that in contrast to what the mainstream media was showing in their footage on Sunday night that would make you think that they sprayed as a result of punch-ups that happened, that was absolutely not the case. They sprayed before the far right started coming into punch-up. There was absolutely no excuse that existed that the police could use to use that spray. They used that spray early in the piece. And those punch-ups that were the footage on the, the news that night happened afterwards. And of course, those punch-ups were the result of members from Reclaim and the fascist groups there breaking through to lay punches. Well, they didn't even break through, did they? They were just allowed to well, yes. wander around the back and sort of you, you've got them in the front of you then and then they've got them in the back. Yes, and we, we were um, two sides of us, as, as you'd know from being there as well. There were the ones with all the flags in front of the Civic Center and then on the other side of us were people who just looked like bystanders, but they were clearly not. The end was a march into the bus station? Yes, 
it was a victory march. That march to the bus station was us taking the streets, us marching through Melton to take the streets. The feeling of that was that, again, we achieved our objectives in going to counter-rally. We did stop them, but we marched. And the crowd watching? The crowd watching, as far as I could tell, were, well, they were watching, so they saw. You know, that was their experience. They saw what a counter-rally is there to do. And the reason that they gave to have that rally there was false as well, wasn't it? Absolutely. It was based on a, a fabricated story about a conflict between a special school and an Islamic school, but members from the community, from the local council, were saying there is no such conflict. And I think that this goes back to the reason that we know that Reclaim Australia changed their rally from central Melbourne out to Melton. They went out to Melton because they saw that as, number one, a way to diminish our numbers, they thought, but also as a recruitment ground out in outer Melton, where people are hurting from the global economic crisis. And that's where the far right tends to go. They latched on to this story that they concocted as a reason their reason for being out there. In a couple of weeks, there'll be another demonstration, this time in Sydney, the 10th anniversary of the disgraceful attack on Muslim people at Cronulla. Yes. There must be a worry if they come back into Cronulla. Yes, that, that is just so highly charged, so highly provocative. That violence from 10 years ago that targeted, as you say, Muslims, targeted people from the Middle East, especially Lebanese people. But of course, it was targeting a a, a much larger part of the population than that. That was incited by fascist groups 10 years ago. And so those same and some new fascist groups that have formed since then have called that action in uh, Cronulla on December 12th as a, in their word, celebration of 10 years ago, claiming that it's their, their historical moment. And fortunately, however, there is counter-organizing against that. And in fact, there will be people going up from Melbourne and campaign against racism and fascism are hiring a bus to be going up. So there will be quite a lot of solidarity coming from parts outside of Sydney at Cronulla because everybody sees exactly what that Cronulla event represents. It's, well, it's obviously an an important event in our bigger picture of having to stop this incipient fascist movement. And the thing that was also good to see from Sunday outside of Melbourne, is that in other cities where Reclaim Australia rallied, they were completely trounced, such as in Hobart, in Sydney, in Brisbane, in Adelaide. The counter-rallies against them 
were much larger and they were highly successful. And this is also just a wonderful thing to see. It's good to see what's happening outside our own respective cities that were actually succeeding in other parts of the country. Your Facebook page? Yes. Listeners who are on Facebook should, if they haven't already, they should like the um, Facebook page of Campaign Against Racism and Fascism and just stay up to date on anything else that's going to be coming from this. And it's so, so important that um, Campaign Against Racism and Fascism build even wider because we are a united front of various organizations and listeners who are in a union should be organizing within our respective unions to have our unions join the campaign against racism and fascism united front but any community organizations so we really need to to build and build and build because this is going to be an ongoing fight and a very important one. Thanks, Debbie. Thank you very much, Jan. And that was Debbie Brennan on a phone line that was getting just a little bit dicey at the end. We read about and watch on TV and social media what life is like for Palestinians in the occupied West Bank. We can't imagine how difficult it is for Palestinian Australians knowing their friends and families are suffering under a brutal occupation. Palestinian-Australian Nasser Mashi and his extended family saw and felt it firsthand and have recently returned from a visit. I asked Mashi first if he still ha- has family in the occupied territories. Yes, we uh, have a lot of family. Our village, Der Dubuan, is uh, just east of Jerusalem and uh, a lot of family still there. And what's the situation for them in their homeland there? Look, it's particularly tough. Our village, Der Dubuan, is just outside the newly created greater limits of Jerusalem as uh, created by Israel. So they are um, now where Jerusalem used to be the centre of uh, their lives. Jerusalem now is, you know, somewhere they can't go. So all of our um, family that carry West Bank identification cards and have cars with West Bank driving number plates, they can't actually access uh, Jerusalem at all. So um, Ramallah has become the centre of um, commerce, etc. for them, and uh, really quite a um, terrible situation for them. Are there restrictions for them getting into Ramallah? Uh, look, they can get into Ramallah quite easily, uh, and I, when I say quite easily, that's compared to most other people within within the West Bank. Getting through Ramallah still requires them to use, I call them goat trails. They're unsealed, second-rate uh, roads. The roads that are most easily accessible into Ramallah are illegal for uh, Palestinian residents of the West Bank to use, and those roads are for Israeli settlers only or residents of Israel, Green Line Israel, with um, their number plates. When were you there last? I came back just, just over a week ago, so I got back to Australia uh, I think, 10 days ago. And who went with you? My mother, my wife, my children and my sister-in-law. So there were seven of us in total. And whereabouts did you go apart from where the family is? Um, look, we, we went all over historic Palestine. So um, to Haifa and Akka in the north and um, we went to the Galilee, Nazareth, all over the West Bank. We were able to do that because um, travelling on an Australian passport, we were able to stay 
in East Jerusalem in a hotel there, um, and we uh, hired a an Israeli car with a Palestinian, an East Jerusalem Palestinian resident driver who was able to take us uh, you know, anywhere we wanted. We went everywhere. As I said, we went to Haifa and uh, uh, Yaffa and Akke in the north of, um, north uh, east of um, Green Line, Israel, Palestine. We went to Nazareth and uh, uh, all over Jerusalem. We went to um, Jericho and the Dead Sea, to Hebron for, for a really distasteful day. Um, to Bethlehem, we were afforded uh, practically unfettered access because of the fact that we were travelling on an Australian passport in an Israeli car. A couple of times that we were pulled over, you know, the fact that we were obvious that we were Palestinian, you know, we were sent to a second line. But, you know, compared to the um, challenges that an ordinary Palestinian goes through, the sort of, you know, 40-minute to two-hour delays that we encountered were, were nothing. And I did say that some people don't get through at all. Oh, absolutely. Look, uh, we were we were at a um, one checkpoint and an elderly man and uh, his granddaughter had been there since 9am and we were there at 2pm and it was, um, this is out in the open, no air conditioning, uh, an aluminium or steel sort of enclosure just waiting in line, you know, and a, a 38, 40 degree day. So, I mean, it was really quite oppressive. No toilets, no water. But this is the day-to-day lot of a, of a Palestinian living under occupation today. So there's no real reason why the people can't get through, which just... Yeah, it's, it's worse than that, I, I think, Jan. I, I don't think it's pig-headedness, and it's certainly not, not security. It's, it's a matrix of control that the um, Israelis have put all over the West Bank, and it's, it's really to um, encircle and uh, surround... Uh, each of the, the villages and uh, population centres to, to cut them off from other uh, centres, you know, to, to really disconnect communities, to disconnect farmers from farmland, families from families. There is absolutely no reason. Uh, to evidence that uh, when we entered the West Bank through uh, the Allenby or Sheikh Hussein Bridge, King Hussein Bridge, excuse me, from Jordan, my wife, uh, children and I, my mother, who have been there a number of times, we went through relatively easy in just, just under four hours. My sister-in-law, who uh, was born in Australia, uh, lived her entire life in Australia. She has a PhD from Melbourne University in cancer research. She was um, grilled for an extra four and a half hours as to why, what were her intentions and purpose, why was she visiting, visiting the state of Israel, etc. So, I mean, the, um, the, the level of harassment is, uh, you know, omnipotent. It just, it, it travels with you everywhere. Just thinking about the farmers and their their fa- and their produce, how do they get their produce to where they need to sell it to? With all these banter stands, some people call them. Yeah, yeah. Look, uh, the 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 resilience of the Palestinian is something to behold, Jan. Whether it be waking up at four o'clock in the morning to harvest their fields at seven o'clock because they know they need three hours to take a circuitous route to their fields, it should only take it should only be a five minute. Uh, walk if you will they find a way you know there's no question that their, their crops aren't tended tended to with the same vigilance or um care that they their ancestors would have tended those crops and there's no question the yields uh necessarily are nowhere near as good as they should be 
but the, the steadfastness of the, of, the, of the Palestinians and in particular the farmers to tend their land is, is really, um, really uh, uplifting. And did you see any examples of produce being held up at checkpoints and actually going uh, rotten? No, look, I, I didn't see any. Um, anecdotally, though, our village uh, produces a lot of olive oil because we're, we're um, just far enough away, if you will, from the nearest Israeli settlement. Most of uh, our village's fields and crops sort of can get to, get to very quickly. And we have uh, one of the, the better oil presses, olive oil presses, in, in that sort of area. And the stories I heard from some of the farmers about the challenges they've faced in past years, whether it be um, olive oil to be at its best, it should be picked and pressed in the same day. And every day that the fruit isn't squeezed, it diminishes the quality of the oil. So whether it be um, settler violence in you know, burning or uprooting trees and new saplings or a, a flying military checkpoint for no other reason other than to create a, uh, you know, grief for farmers, etc. In past years, it's been considerably worse. Uh, that being said, I, I think um, most of the activity, military uh, uh, activity, was really concentrated in Jerusalem uh, whilst we were there. Can you talk about what your family or friends would have told you about the settler violence against them in the yeah, yeah, that well, area? The Israeli settlers are generally of a, um, a very fundamentalist Torah style. They're, they, under the protection and the watchful uh, protecting eyes of the Israeli army, carry out all levels of wanton uh, terrorism against the, the indigenous Palestinians there. It can be from, you know, burning down mosques and churches to um, graffiti to, uh, as we know, the, the, the burning of the Darwishi home uh, and killing of um, four-year-old Ali's mum, dad and little brother through to destruction of crops, killing of, um, uh, of uh, livestock. Yes, it's some very horrible stories, yeah. And those settlement people, are they coming direct from Israel or are they coming from maybe the US? Look, in Hebron where we went and uh, the ones that I saw on this most recent trip all spoke with very, very thick New York accents. They were uh, religious zealots from New York, Brooklyn. They were the ones I saw this trip. You said earlier that the, the situation in Hebron was particularly nasty. Could you explain a bit more? Well, yeah. I don't know the numbers exactly, but you know, Hebron's a city of something of the order of 300,000 Palestinians. There's something like uh, 500 Israeli settlers, illegal settlers within Hebron. There's 2,000 troops that protect these uh, these settlers within within Hebron. They've closed down a street, what used to be the busiest marketplace within Hebron, very reminiscent of the old city of uh, Jerusalem. And what used to be a, a lively thoroughfare marketplace with uh, any number of different uh, shop owners and stalls is now just a, a ghost town. You know, uh, the odd... Uh, shop is still open but you walk into the shop and all the goods are covered in dust and it's more than anything the resilience of uh, an individual shopkeeper uh, not closing his store some of the the shops above the shops uh, settlers have moved into those homes and the palestinians have had to uh, install netting because the um, settlers throw things down blocks of uh, bricks and um Look, even to, to, to the point where I've heard stories where they, they throw human excrement down upon the Palestinians from above. So a, a really diabolical situation for, for those under occupation in Hebron. Children going to school, how difficult is that? 
I, we were there on 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 a Friday, and Friday for um, for Muslims is a you know the holy day, so school was closed. But I met with a, a member of a Christian peacemaker team, and they, they do some wonderful work escorting children through the checkpoints. And um, she told me that on on any given morning, whether it be as simple as grown adults hurling uh, abuse at the children and these are children as young as six you know they're preschoolers through to um uh, through to high school students who would have built up a greater resilience but hurling abuse at them spitting through to anything from uh, physical violence and pushing and shoving uh, and to the point where today you know there's a, a a level of animosity where you know just calling out that somebody's a terrorist and they've got a knife can you know get somebody shot so that hasn't happened yet to the kids but you know the 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 christian peacemaker teams that i uh, the lady i spoke to there was very very fearful that that was the next step will children have been killed murdered well there's no there's no question i mean you you can't kill a child and not it not be murder exactly what were you told about or was it earlier when you were there were you told of the death of a child no not, not not on this trip when I was in Jerusalem, though, just yep. if I can tell you about a, a situation there, when I was in Jerusalem and we were exited the Damascus Gate of the old city, we walked out of um, the old city after doing some shopping and, and um, souvenir buying, and as we exited uh, that historic gate, you know, there was approximately eight to ten uh, Israeli uh, uh, special forces police standing there, and they really, you know, I, I call them stormtroopers. You know, they just kitted to the max you, you know, can't see their you know, nothing but their eyes fingers on on the trigger of automatic weapons just standing there and uh the look in their eyes you know, or, you know for want of a better description they were they were just just looking for somebody to uh, uh to provoke them and not 90 seconds after we left that gate we um uh, heard gunshots and uh I turned around and we were probably about 80 metres, 100 metres away, and they'd uh, gunned down a young man who allegedly had uh, had tried to uh, steal a gun off one of the, the soldiers. So the arbitrary nature of the, this sort of extrajudicial killing is, is something wanton. Unless you actually see see the level of kit that these soldiers have, and then when they tell you that a 19-year-old boy or an 18-year-old boy tried to steal a gun off them, the absurdity of that argument or the absurdity of them saying that somebody tried to stab them, it beggars belief. Within two minutes after that, there were um, these soldiers on horseback throwing around stun grenades. You know, it, it quickly resembled a, uh, a, a riot scene. What, what I found most uh, inspiring or awesome, if you will, was just the, uh, the resilience of, of the the steadfastness of, of, of those Palestinians in East Jerusalem. I mean, they were, you know, my, my wife, children, I, you know, was trying to get them into uh, into a shop and to safety because, you know, that's our, our first uh, nature is that, you know, flight, if you will, uh, at the sign of danger. Those Palestinians, you know, it's a day-to-day occurrence for them. They just stood their ground. You know, horses were charging around, stunning grenades everywhere. Look, they covered their noses and eyes from the, from the gas and the, uh, the sounds, but... The message was clear, you know, we're here to stay, we're not going anywhere. And evictions happening while you were there? Uh, look, I, did, I didn't encounter, I didn't see any. Uh, Jeff Helper, uh, who's the chair of Israeli Coalition, Israeli Coalition Against Housing De- Demolitions, uh, I met with him a, a, a couple of trips ago. Uh, unfortunately, he was on a tour in uh, 
in Europe whilst we were there, but I would say, just try and think, one, two, two of the people we met with, they've got, between them and their relatives, they've got 10 outstanding uh, home demolition orders. And, th- and these are issued by the, the Israeli police and, the, you know, the, they've got the legitimacy, you know, between talking points over the Israeli courts where, you know, 99.9% of Palestinians are convicted. They've got the legitimacy of planning violations where Palestinians have built extra rooms on their homes or built an extra f- uh, story on their, uh, their apartment block to house an ever-growing family and, and have done so without planning permission, you know. The reality is that uh, Palestinians are rarely if ever granted planning permission. The cost of a planning permit uh, in East Jerusalem for a Palestinian could be anything up to fifty dollars or $100,000 US. Uh, and the process can take five, seven, ten years. And so Palestinians are forced to build, you know, quote-unquote illegally. And the numbers that ICAD uh, talk about are something of the order of 40,000 homes since 1967 have been demolished by the State of Israel. And that's evidenced by the fact that since 1948 and the establishment of the State of Israel, over 600 cities, towns, villages have been built for Jewish residents of Israel. Not one Arab, Palestinian, Muslim or Christian city has been built. So, you know, that that matrix of control that I was talking about before extends beyond just the West Bank, through East Jerusalem and right through Israel proper, or Green Line Israel. Can I ask you about the other members of your family? You said your your father was a refugee. Your mother went with you. What was her story? Mum's Lebanese, Jen. So okay, all right. She, we, we've, we've adopted her as a Palestinian. <laughs> <laughs> Wouldn't be her first visit. No, no. Mum's been going to Palestine since '95. So '93, Oslo was signed, and there was a period of great optimism great optimism in the post-93 to sort of 95, 96 period where, um, you know, many Palestinians in Gaza, in the West Bank were working inside Israel. There were, you know, doctors were working together. There was also, I mean, were the, the, the belief that peace was imminent, that the cycle of violence and, and bloodletting had ended and that we were moving towards a future where all of our children could be raised with the hope and expectation of a better future together was prevalent. So mum and dad used to go, uh, you know, quite regularly after 95. And my father passed uh, almost nine years ago now. But, you know, every time we go with mum, we make sure we go past, you know, some of her favourite spots that she used to go with my dad. And um, every time, every time, it resembles her memory and now our memory that little bit less. And the overwhelming Judaization of uh, East Jerusalem and Jerusalem and even the West Bank now is, uh, it, it really is quite ugly. Whether it be the renaming of a street that, you know, previously had an Arab name to, 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 a, to a Hebrew name through to, uh, you know, the knocking over of uh, an Islamic cemetery or, or a Christian cemetery to build, you know, a, a peace centre in, in West Jerusalem. I mean, it, it really is quite macabre and sickening. You have three children? Three children. How old are they? So I've got a 12, a 10 and an 8-year-old. Tell me about their reactions to the different places you went to and the different things that they saw. Look, my, my, my daughter who's 8 is really quite young and, and uh, uh, for her, I'm, you know, it's all, I think, a little bit of an adventure. But my 12-year-old my on our last trip when he was 10 actually said to me, 
asked me the question, Dad, why, why are they building on our land? Uh, look, I, I don't remember actually asking that of my father. I know that along the way he told me, you know, about what happened to Palestine in the 40s through to 1948. But, you know, it really was uh, quite a painful conversation to have with my then 10-year-old and just trying to explain to him why we could visit my grandfather's grave in Palestine, but his grandfather's grave was in Australia, and explaining that, you know, the the sadness that I personally feel that my father isn't buried with his father and his grandfather, etc. So, I, look, I think... As a 12-year-old, how is he coping? He's, he's a great kid and copes, but uh, there's no question that it, it, it affected him in a way this time different to the last time. And certainly having seen that uh, slain boy in, uh, in Jerusalem and then the, uh, the riot police, etc., charging around on horses, wielding batons, and, you know, that really, uh, really shocked him. And the 10-year-old? Similarly, mm-hmm. similarly. I'm, I'm glad, my, look, my daughter and wife, mother and sister-in-law were, I'd already, they were already in, deep in a, in a cafe when everything went down, if you will. And so they sort of heard but didn't see. Uh, but the two boys and I were there. Were there things you wanted to do while you were there that you didn't? Yeah, look, a number of things that we wanted to do that, you know, we just gave up. We wanted to go to uh, Nablus uh, in the West Bank and we wanted to go to uh, Jenin. We wanted to visit a couple of Palestinian refugee camps within within the West Bank. Uh, The the roads were just closed. Our attempt to enter um, Nablus, you know, we spent two hours sitting in a... uh, in a line that didn't move and you know when you're when you're a tourist on you know you've only got sort of eight or ten days there you you really have to at some point give it up you know we spent an hour and a bit driving to to Nablus uh, in the West Bank which it should only take something of 25 minutes to get there but once we got there and spent two hours it was you know lunchtime and the decision was made do we spend another two or three or four hours hoping to get in for before we have to turn back and go back to the hotel did you speak to any Israelis Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yes. Can, can, perhaps I can ask you about, yeah, talk about them. I met with and uh, sat down with a, a great friend, Miko Pallad, who was there. and uh, had lunch with him and had uh, uh, evening uh, drinks with Amira Haas. And they're both staunch uh, supporters of Palestinian rights to self-determination. They both agree that this is the worst it's ever been and are very pessimistic as to um, the future of uh, Israel-Palestine. I can tell you about our experience walking around, walking around Haifa. Haifa is uh, an area that historically has had quite a very heavy mix of, uh, you know, Arab, uh, of, of Palestinian-Israeli inhabitants. Haifa is a, a Palestinian city that, you know, after 1948's ethnic cleanse has, you know, got significant amounts of uh, uh, a significant Jewish population now. But there are still very many Palestinians there. That walking the streets. You know, I, I obviously look Palestinian. That um, you know, the, the glares and the looks we got were so very ominous that uh, often I found myself, you know, just talking quite loudly in a thick Australian accent, endeavouring to differentiate myself to, you know, try and ensure the safety of my family. I mean, I've, I've never ever felt the need to do that in any of my previous trips, uh, and yet there were many times. Uh, inside Israel proper, I didn't feel safe. Just to get back to Australia, you had the very successful APAN, that's the Australia-Palestine Advocacy Network dinner here in Melbourne 
on the 26th of October and that was preceded by the 2015 AGM and the executive has resolved its position on BDS. At the November 2014 AGM, APAN decided not to change its position in order to consult further with affiliates on the issue. Explain what's happening. I've just recently joined the executive of APAN and for, for a number of years APAN, which is the Australian Palestine Advocacy Network, has um, uh, not endorsed the call of uh, Palestinian civil society for a, a boycott, divestment and sanction campaign against Israeli policies, uh, against the occupation and uh, Israel's flagrant violation of international law. But um, at our uh, AGM all members of um, APAN unanimously endorsed a, a call for boycotts, divestments and sanctions against uh, Israel, against Israeli policies and against international institutions that are complicit in the violations of um, Palestinian human rights and international law in Israel and Palestine. And BDS is growing worldwide? BDS is growing worldwide. In fact, I read a report today that uh, arms sales, Israeli arms sales, are down 50% on two years ago. So I think... Um, you know, the one thing that Israel craves is legitimacy. And um, the boycott, divestment and sanctions campaign is certainly uh, starting to take, uh, make some significant gains. Especially in the US as well. Look, it's going from strength to strength. We're coming off a very low base, Jan, so I'm not, uh, uh, not going to say that we're going to create uh, the circumstance that ensures Israeli compliance with international law. We've still got a long way to go. But uh, it is hurting. There's no question. That being said, it is making significant grounds. And to the point where, you know, we've now got people like Hillary Clinton, who, you know, is running for a uh, Democratic nomination as, uh, for Prime Minister at the end, uh, end of next year, now having to uh, answer questions on her position on BDS. So, you know, when, when a, the front-running Democratic candidate has to actually have a position on boycott, divestment and sanction, you know that people are listening. And how do people get involved with knowing what the companies are, what the specific things are that they should be boycotting, divesting in? Well, there's any number of um, websites. You know, Google BDS, and you can end up on uh, uh, bds.net, look up different companies that profiteer. Uh, what the mm-hmm. best site, I think, is bdsmovement.net, and that's the, uh, the website of the BDS national community. So... Uh, that's a great place to go. And then from there, you know, there's um, places within the website where you can find out what um, entities and what businesses are, in fact, not only complicit in, but also uh, very strong supporters of Israeli policy. And supporting BDS is the message that the people in Palestine are sending back with you? Correct, absolutely. Uh, the, the message, you know, every time I go and I say, you know, what, what is it you'd like me to take back with me? overwhelmingly the the message is tell people tell people what's going on we are uh, human beings we love our children we have a wish and a desire for a a future for ourselves and our children that is free of conflict free of uh, the hassle of occupation that we just want a, a, a life where we can dream about a better future thank you fantastic thank you and that was nasa marshy who is a member of APAN, the Australia-Palestine Advocacy Network. If you'd like to join or find out more about APAN, just um, do a Google search or search whatever search you like for 
www.apan.org.au and find out about boycott, divestment and sanctions. You are listening to Melbourne's community radio station, 3CR, where the time is six minutes to five o'clock. 3CR are selling kefir Palestinian scarves in support of the last factory that produces them in Hebron, Palestine. All profits will be donated to the reconstruction efforts in Gaza and support Palestinian industry. These are traditional scarves available in red and black or you can choose from a modern design. Go to 3cr.org.au slash shop to buy online or drop into the station during business hours. An article in The Australian of the 10th of November caught my eye, titled Interest in Arrest Appears Lost as Rogue Nugenhan Banker Found. And I remembered the writings and research of political and social activist Joan Coxage about the Nugenhan Bank and asked her to look back at that research. Well, thanks, Jan, for the, the recent news item that you sent me, which appeared in a weekend edition of The Australian about the reappearance of Michael Hand. Now, I didn't read about that anywhere else in this country, whether it was reproduced anywhere in other media, I don't know. But it was a fascinating uh, sort of reminder of his part in the Nugenhan, or notorious, I should say, Nugenhan Bank. And it's an extraordinarily complex web that I do my level best to untangle. What did come out in the little article was that Michael Hand is now 73 years old, openly living in the northwest US state of Idaho, and I think very appropriately running a business supplying combat and hunting knives. So we'll go back to his role in the Nugenhan Bank. The Nugenhan Bank was set up in Sydney in 1973 by Frank Nugen and Michael Hand. Nugen was a businessman spiv whose family ran a fruit packing business near Griffiths, an area well known for its drug crops and gangland murders. And he set it up along with Michael Hand, and Hand was an American-born former Green Beret in US Special Forces in Vietnam and a CIA operative, the two usually went together. Now, the pair kicked off the bank with a paid-up capital of a million dollars, which Nugent said had come from astute share trading, but his colleagues were very sceptical. Hand had settled in Sydney in the late 60s after discharge from the US Army and instantly acquired some very influential friends, among them transportation tycoon Sir Peter Abels, real estate tycoon Sir Paul Strasser and business associate John Charity, who was a consultant for Nugent Hand. Respected Wall Street journalist Jonathan Quitney in his book The Crimes of Patriots described Abel's sweetheart deals with the US Mafia that gained his entry into the American transport scene. And as an aside, knighthoods back then could be bought from the corrupt New South Wales Premier Askin if you had $60,000 in your kick. Another close friend of Michael Hand was the mysterious Bernie Houghton, a US naval intelligence officer vouched for by former ASIO agent Leo Carter. 
he was one of Houghton's vast network of US and Australian spies. Houghton became a third partner in Nugent Hand, and back then Sydney was a popular rest and recreation centre for US troops serving in Vietnam. And Houghton cashed in on the Yankee influx by running three popular nightclubs in King's Cross, the Texas Tavern, the Bourbon and Beef and Harpoon Harry's. Nugent Hand was an unbank, a non-bank, in that it never did any banking nor hired any bankers but was a centre point of a huge clandestine empire involving drug running, money laundering, fraud, secret arms deals and covert intelligence operations, employing some of the biggest names in American defence and intelligence with enough admirals and generals to start a mini-war, including former CIA Director William Colby. Colby ran uh, Operation Phoenix in Vietnam, an assassination and terror squad responsible for the violent torture and death of tens of thousands of Vietnamese suspected of having Viet Cong connections, and it's where he certainly would have met Mike Hand. Colby was sacked by President Ford in 1976 for malfeasance, but he was listed as the bank's official legal counsel. The links between organised crime and intelligence agencies aren't new, but Nugent Hand's influence extended way beyond a bevy of crooks. It was an intelligence jargon called a conduit to buy off Australian politicians, trade union officials and journalists, some of whom were probably unaware of the source of favours and disinformation. A former Nugent Hand principal, Carl Schuller, gave evidence that the CIA transferred a slush fund of $2,400,000 to Australia's opposition parties in March 1973, a mere four months after Whitlam was elected. This was confirmed by former CIA officer Victor Marchetti, who was highly regarded, actually, and that the CIA had given funding to anti-Labour parties. But no documents could be found as thousands were destroyed following the mysterious death of Frank Nugan, which apparently happened early on a Sunday morning in January 1980 when a new New South Wales police patrol came across a Mercedes-Benz sedan abandoned on a lonely stretch of the Great Western Highway near Lithgow, New South Wales, with its parking lights still on. Slumped across the front seat was the body of a man with a bullet hole in his head, with his right hand resting on the trigger of a .30 calibre rifle and a used cartridge sitting on the floor. Police found papers indicating that the dead man was Francis John Nugan. The autopsy found no trace of drugs, poison or prior injury, and the death was deemed to be suicide, a verdict that created a deal of controversy. The inquest was told that neither the gun nor the cartridge were kept for fingerprinting. No photographs were taken of the body in the position it was found, and Frank's brother Ken only identified it from a photograph, claiming he was too upset. There were even doubts as to whether the corpse was was that of Frank Nugan. Investigators from the New South Wales Attorney General's Department believed that the body of a missing Italian drug dealer could have been put into Nugan's car to make it look as if Nugan had killed himself. Testimony was also given at Nugan's inquest about a new testament found on the body with weird notes in Nugan's handwriting. Visualise 100,000 customers worldwide. Prayerise. Actualise. A list found by police in Nugent's briefcase contains scores of names of prominent Australians involved in politics, sport, business and entertainment. 
Next to the names were handwritten dollar amounts, mostly five- and six-figure sums. Were they debtors? Creditors? No one knew. Sergeant Brown, the New South Wales cops, testified that he found William Colby's calling card in a wallet with messages and dates written on the back. And it was reported that an overseas bank account in Frank Nugent's name had been used months after his reputed death and an Australian businessman swore on oath that he had met Frank in the United States long after his funeral. When New South Wales Attorney General Walker called for an exhumation, police at first claimed the body had been cremated, but later changed their story. They told Walker there were no dental records, but again changed their story. When the body was finally exhumed, police were quick off the mark to preempt the, the coroner's finding by announcing to the media that the dental work corresponded with details in Dugan's file. And knowing the capacity of the CIA to influence evidence and the corruptibility of the New South Wales police, anything is possible. Nugent could have been murdered to keep him quiet, or else the body in the car was that of another man. At the same time, Michael Hand took off like a rocket from his Sydney hideout, leaving behind a half-eaten meal, his clothes, passport, wallet and credit card, and hasn't been seen since, that is, until now. The bank's slide became a crash, and in May 1980, Nugent Hand went into liquidation. The New South Wales Corporate Affairs Commission appointed a special team of investigators to probe the company's activities, and facts began to emerge about its real purpose. Nugent Hand was incorporated in the Cayman Islands in July 1976 and had a mail drop office there. Just as, as it was expanding into a global organisation and hooking up with Price Waterhouse in the Bahamas, two other banks were collapsing the Mercantile Bank and Castle Bank and Trust, both based in the Bahamas, both with ties to the Central Intelligence Agency and both with the same directors. The central mover behind both banks was Paul Helliwell, who later went on to Miami to become the paymaster for the Bay of Pigs fiasco and was deeply involved in terror operations against the Cuban government, particularly Fidel Castro. The US Internal Revenue Service and Justice Department, perhaps unaware of the CIA connection, launched an investigation into Castle, believing it had helped people avoid paying taxes, but abruptly terminated their investigation after surreptitiously obtaining its client list, which contained a host of celebrities and organised crime characters, but it was undoubtedly the CIA connection that called off the dogs. The mercantile bank folded after hapless depositors discovered that most of its assets were worthless. The $25.1 million that Price Waterhouse had certified to simply did not exist. The real money had been disseminated as loans to unidentified figures but were never repaid. Not only were mercantile's cooked books signed off by Price Waterhouse, but a senior partner on retirement, he later went to work for the mob, and the Wall Street Journal reported that the same group of directors and shareholders operated three other Caribbean banks which the CIA used to launder money. And it seems almost certain that Nugent Hand expanded under an arrangement with the CIA to replace the failing Caribbean front banks that were certainly operating with CIA participation. But some of us were puzzled that the CIA, with its vast resources and funding, used the same handful of people over and over again. Only about 20 appear to have been involved, with less than 10 in leading positions. Part of the answer was detailed in a civil court action sought in Florida 
by two American journalists injured in the CIA-organised bombing in Nicaragua. The 300-page indictment showed that Nugent crimes were only a small part of a long trail of international racketeering, assassinations, tortures and even wars carried out by a team that first came together formally in 1959 after the fall of Cuban dictator Batista when Vice President Richard Nixon organised his mobster mates to build a foreign expeditionary force to be launched against the Cuban people. To finance the operation, they used their authority to corruptly and unlawfully divert funds appropriated by the US Congress for foreign intelligence gathering, mixing this with mafia money and laundering it through foreign and domestic banks. In about 1960, the anti-Castro group was supplemented by an assassination unit as part of a broader scheme to bump off foreign leaders, the same team later working for Nugenhand under the control of Theodore Shackley. In 1972, Shackley became the CIA's head of Western Hemisphere activities and was part of the criminal conspiracy that orchestrated the fall of the Allende government in Chile and installation of General Pinochet. Australian ASIS personnel, that's the equivalent, our equivalent of the CIA, participated in this exercise and two years later Shackley was up to his rotten neck in helping orchestrate the fall of the Whitlam government. Again, during the 1987 Iran Contragate hearings in the US Senate, many of the same Nugenhan CIA names had reappeared. From the moment he took office, President Reagan preached about the need to isolate so-called terrorist states, especially identifying Iran. And then it turned out he had actually armed the Iranians. Reagan had been told he would lose the 1980 presidential election unless he could bring back the 65 Americans taken hostage by Iranian students in 1979. Iran was desperate for arms and an agreement was reached to hang on to the hostages until Reagan was elected in exchange for $5 billion worth of arms. The hostages were released accordingly. Money from the arms shipment, along with drug trafficking, was also used to fund the Contra, a group of psychopaths using extreme violence and torture to overthrow Nicaragua's Sandinista government. There are so many questions, so many questions. Why did the Hawke government refuse to release some 1,200 documents on the Nugenhan Bank, considering it was a front for international crime and CIA operations in this country? And why does his government repeatedly refuse to find out why the CIA barred the release under the US Freedom of Information Act of 14 intelligence reports on Commerce International, the CIA front company that played a central role in the destruction of the Whitlam government? And why at a time when the CIA was at its most active and obvious and its activities were well documented, especially in its home base, the United States, are Australians virtually alone in the world in believing that foreign interference was purely the stuff of spy novels. Why did we swallow the nonsense that Australia is the only country in the world where the CIA doesn't operate? Why do academics and others ignore Kerr's long-standing CIA connections as early as 1944? Kerr had been sent by the Australian government to work with the OSS, a forerunner of the CIA, which in 1947 actually became the CIA, And the CIA paid for Kerr's travel, built his prestige and even published his writings. And what about the arrival of Marshall Green as the newest US ambassador to Australia within six months of Whitlam's election? Green was the most senior career diplomat ever seen here and had the distinction of being involved in four countries 
which later sprouted coups. As ambassador to Indonesia from 65 to 69, Green had overseen the, seen the decisive role of the United States in the events that led to the massacre of at least a million Indonesian so-called communists and the overthrow of President Sukarno. Not surprisingly, Green became known as the coup master. But local truth-benders went even further by reducing a complex international web of intrigue to a simplistic personality clash between a few main players, being told infinitum that the Whitlam government was a bad one, and although John Kerr was a vain, arrogant shit, he was justified in sacking it. Many dedicated people tried to get to the bottom of Nugent Hand, but there was only so much they could do against a well-coordinated cover-up. For example, the, the Australian Corporate Affairs Commission sent inspectors along to see documents, but kept cooling their heels for more than four hours. When they were finally allowed entree, they seemed surprised to find that many of the file drawers were empty. The Commission's effort to apply normal accounting methods to the corpse of Nugent Hand bordered on the ridiculous and, you could say, the insane and the naive, but they were criticised because they were so pathetically weak in uh, putting their demands to the Nugent Hand crooks. How much of that do you remember? How much of it do you did you know or didn't know? Joan Coxie certainly knows a lot. She did a lot of writings on the topic of Nugent Hand and all his associates, their associates, over many years. And thanks to Joan for putting that piece together. As she said, it's such a, a web of people and events and crooks and it's hard to get your head around it all. Come down to the Loman Hotel in Brunswick East on Saturday the 28th of November at 9pm for the Joe Hill Centenary Tribute Concert. Old Time Union Band, Bob Mancor, local Melbourne musicians plus special surprise guests will perform songs of worker struggle and pay tribute to a man who inspired Woody Guthrie, Paul Robeson, Joan Baez, Pete Seeger, Bruce Springsteen and countless others. For more information, visit www.3cr.org.au. In Salt Lake City, Joseph I am standing by my bed. And for the final part of Tuesday Home Time for today, I'm speaking with Professor Emeritus James Petrus, whom I rang at his home in New York earlier today, and began by saying that the US and friends were free to bomb in Syria. But heaven forbid if anyone, i.e. the Russians, supports the target of the U.S. aggression, no go. Well, I think it's very clear that the uh, U.S. and uh, its European allies, or if you will, the vassals, have been pulling punches to supposedly uh, bombing terrorists. If we're to believe the accounts coming out of Russia and RT, they've done more in a week to defeat the uh, terrorists in Syria than the U.S. has done in over a year. I think the hypocrisy has a deeper meaning, and I think it has to do with the fact that they've uh, been very selective in uh, their so-called intervention, and I think they're uh, clearly a qualitative change now. I think the uh, the mercenaries and invaders that have been occupying 
parts of Syria are on the run now, and, and I think it should be attributed to this intervention by President Putin. Is it also a fact that Russia is expanding its military bases in Syria? Well, I think they've always had bases there. I think what they're really concerned about is the breakdown of the Syrian government as it becomes a nest for Chechnyans and other terrorists that have been bombing Russian cities. They saw what happened in Libya, and I I think they uh, correctly evaluated that the West is in no position to create a secure country. I think they are intervening in part to support an ally and to maintain their base, but also, I think, equally important, it's part of their attack on these uh, terrorists that operate out of the Caucasus and threaten Russian security. And I think they're doing a very good job. They claim there are thousands of Chechnyans that have gone to Syria. And I'm, I'm sure there are other Caucasian extremists that have been taking advantage of the arms and training And the question is, when they go home, they're likely to be uh, well prepared to to spread the terrorist activity. So overall, I think both from the point of view of maintaining Syria as a viable state, preserving their uh, base in Syria, and also for their own national security, I, I think it's all been a positive move. And I think it undermines the efforts by the U.S. to destroy Syria like they destroyed Iraq and they destroyed Libya and Somalia and all these other countries that they intervene and destroy. They don't establish viable alternative states. We've had the opposition foreign minister here repeating over and over that Assad, that he's responsible for, 250,000 deaths of his own people. Uh, This is absolutely ludicrous. Most of the deaths have occurred since the U.S.-sponsored uprising and the Turkish-Saudi financing of these terrorists that have come into the country. In no way is Assad responsible for those 250,000 deaths. I think they all occurred uh, coincidentally with the uh, uprising. Uh, The most you can say is Assad's father was responsible for upward of 20,000 killings of the Islamic groups that rose up against him several decades ago. But I I think the government did put down, but it didn't kill even thousands of people. Maybe uh, several hundred people were put down in the original uprising uh, back four years ago but nothing of 250,000 as a result of the Western instigated war against us. Assad has demonstrated over and over willingness to negotiate with the political opposition. Maybe before he was reticent about negotiating, but I think he's demonstrated, and I think Putin is strongly in favor of a, a negotiated settlement, which will include down the road once the situation is stabilized, the open and free election in which Assad would participate. I quite agree with you, but you have these ministers saying 
well, this is the facts, and not one journalist will question them. It's amazing. And then they have this so-called observatory in England, which is a one-man operation, attempts to interview him to find out what his organization is. It's been fruitless. Who finances him is fruitless. It's clearly the observatory is a very makeshift operation that has support from British government and relies on hearsay and third-hand information. I think it's totally unreliable regarding the facts about uh, chemical weapons by Assad and dropping bombs on civilians or Russians bombing the wrong people in Syria. This is totally from an unreliable source. And then you have the fact of the Syrian Free Army, who's arming them? Well, what's the most interesting part is the U.S. has allocated $500 million to train mercenaries to go in, uh, apart from the ones that they're financing that are already operating in Syria. And these people, they admit as soon as they cross the border, they take their arms and hand it over to the Al-Qaeda franchise or even ISIS in, in large scale and, and of the couple hundred people that they've trained, uh, according to this program, 90% of them have uh, turned over their arms and and joined the terrorists that they're supposed to be fighting. So it's been a total and unmitigated disaster from even the U.S. perspective. The move by Russia will only intensify the political crisis inside Turkey, is that correct? Well, Erdogan is a dictator. He's jailed hundreds of journalists. Probably per capita, more journalists have been jailed in Turkey than any other country in the world. He smashed uh, civil society demonstrations, built pharaonic palace for himself, and has been involved in high-level corruption. And I I I think that this terror campaign against the Kurds that he's launched and uh, is, is ongoing is a way of trying to use uh, a foreign enemy as a unifying slogan to uh, get himself elected with a uh, absolute majority in order to seize total executive powers and, and uh, turn Turkey into a kind of Bonapartist dictatorship. It's hard to surmise what the reaction in Turkey is. Clearly, Erdogan is trying to exploit it. He's trying to uh, use it as a talking point uh, for getting uh, better relations with the uh, Western countries. And they're also negotiating with him on refugees that they create through their wars. All of these problems resulting from the uh, invasion of Syria and the destruction wrought by the uh, Western proxies. And, and I think uh, Turkey is today a economically uh, a crisis-ridden society. The, the uh, Turkish lira is dropping precipitously. Uh, the balance of payments are way out of whack and their foreign financing of their uh, deficit is a problem, and uh, the whole situation has become very questionable. 
Now, regular listeners to Tuesday Home Time might be thinking, I've heard that before. And that actually is an interview that I recorded with James about two or three weeks ago. Somehow, the interview for today has been, oh, it's got mixed up with the one from three weeks ago. So that will be put back until next week. And he was talking in the interview that I recorded this morning about the recent election in Argentina, the election coming up in Venezuela and the aftermath of the the bombing and the shootings in Paris. So that's for the program next week. Professor Emeritus James Petrus from Bingham University in New York. You're all invited to the Sampari Art Exhibition and Sale, organised by the Federal Republic of West Papua Women's Office at the ACU Gallery on Brunswick Street, Fitzroy. The Sampari Exhibition will also include a host of exciting events, including poetry, literature, the environment and film between December 4th and 13th. For more information, go to dfat.federalrepublicofwestpapua.org or call Bronwyn on 0413-988-280. The Federal Republic of West Papua Women's Office is a 3CR supporter. As world leaders meet in Paris for the United Nations Climate Summit, we, the people will gather across Australia and march alongside people in hundreds of major cities around the world to create the largest climate rallies in history. On the evening of Friday the 27th of November, the Australian Conservation Foundation urges you to join us at the State Library of Victoria at 5.30pm. From here on in, we're all in. Australian Conservation Foundation is a 3CR supporter. Come down to the Lerman Hotel in Brunswick East on Saturday the 28th of November at 9pm for the Joe Hill Centenary Tribute Concert. Old Time Union Band, Bob Mancor, local Melbourne musicians plus special surprise guests will perform songs of workers' struggle and pay tribute to a man who inspired Woody Guthrie, Paul Robeson, Joan Baez, Pete Seeger, Bruce Springsteen and countless others. For more information, visit www.3cr.org.au. In Salt Lake City, just as I am standing by my bed. And as we have a couple of minutes left, I will play in full the song for the Eureka Stockade by David Rovix. And that um, Eureka Day is next Thursday, the 3rd of December, back in 1854. Here's David Rovix. From every corner of the world They came from all around When in 1851 They struck gold upon the ground Every voyage was a long one Months upon the stormy sea Some to seek their fortune Others escaping slavery 
What they found on the gold fields was ruled by brutish thugs, discrimination and taxation mixed with swinging billy clubs. The gold was getting scarcer and cops were getting worse. The diggers burned their licenses and vowed to end this curse. They swore an oath beneath the Southern Cross. They'd stand together and break the license laws. From twenty different nations, they gathered here as one in Ballarat beneath the southern sun. The crown tried to divide them, giving preference to some. The diggers wouldn't have it; they said it's all of us or none. They built a stockade. While the redcoats massed nearby, and they heard the miners shouting, "We're ready now to die." The rebel miners waited for whatever lay in store. And on one December morning in 1854, the redcoats attacked the camp. Dozens there would fall amongst these brave gold diggers who'd risen to the call. They swore an oath beneath the Southern Cross. They'd stand together. And break the license laws. From twenty different nations, they gathered here as one in Ballarat beneath the southern sun. The army thought it was over. And things go their way, but when fifteen thousand miners rallied a month later on the day, the crown conceded everything, all of their demands. They'd won an end to license fees, the right to vote and land. So here's to Joe and Charlie, Waller and the rest. They drew the battle lines and put crown rule to the test. The diggers may have lost the battle, but they quickly won the day. And those shots fired in Victoria were heard ten thousand miles away. They swore an oath beneath the Southern Cross. They'd stand together and break the license laws. From twenty different nations, they gathered here as one in Ballarat beneath the Southern Sun. They swore an oath beneath the Southern Cross. They'd stand together and break the license laws. From twenty different nations, they gathered here as one in Ballarat beneath the Southern Sun. And that was David Rovics. With the song of the Eureka Stockade. I'm Jane Clifton, author, musician, actor, marriage celebrant, author of the Address Book. I've always been fond of 3CR, and not just because they played the song by my band Stiletto "Woman in Trouble" fifty thousand times. I was grateful for that, but that was a few years ago. Here I am again after all these years, and so is 3CR, still supporting musicians and writers and people with ideas to share. Keep going, 3CR.
And that's all for me for today. I'll be back next Tuesday at 4 o'clock. But stay tuned for Jonathan in just a moment for Food Fight. Bye for now.